we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. My name is Mark Krikorian, Executive Director of the Center. And this week, we're going to talk about some fireworks that happened on Capitol Hill last week that are fun kind of in and of themselves, but also have some real policy relevance. DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas testified before the House of Representatives. Two separate committee hearings. One was a little more routine, but the one before the Judiciary Committee was not just interesting in a sense of, you know, kind of watching a car crash, but also revealing in a policy sense about what the administration's thinking is. So we have two people with extensive experience on Capitol Hill and in agencies to talk about this. Rob Law, who is an analyst at the center, was the policy director at USCIS. That's the part of Homeland Security that does the green cards and citizenship and what have you. And actually, Rob was there during the Trump administration, but during the Obama administration, or part of it, now Secretary Mayorkas was the head of USCIS, of that actual agency. And our other guest is Art Arthur, also a fellow here at the center, has been on Capitol Hill, two separate stints on Capitol Hill, and also an immigration judge and an immigration prosecutor. So both our guests have experience with the way this kind of thing works, congressional hearings and agency testimony and what have you. So we're going to start with Rob, if you could kind of just set the table for us, like what was the hearing and what were some of the high points? Sure. Thanks, Mark. You know, last week really reflected a rare occurrence of Secretary Mayorkas appearing before Congress as the Democrat control of both the House and Senate have tended to shy away from having Biden administration officials in front of them. But First, Secretary Mayorkas appeared before the House Homeland Security Committee to discuss the DHS budget for this upcoming fiscal year 2023, which was followed the very next day, April 28th, by the House Judiciary Committee, which had its standard DHS oversight hearing. The first hearing, the Homeland Security one, was not as newsworthy, if you will, kind of just highlighted generally the DHS budget from a notable point. DHS claims to have limited resources to enforce our immigration laws, yet they request fewer detention beds. They seek no money to actually build a physical wall at the southern border and things along those lines. So they like to throw up the prospect of a lack of resources and then not only do not seek out additional resources, but they actually seek fewer resources in the critical aspects that that would actually do something on, on the deterrent and enforcement front. But the fireworks were there on, on the 28th for sure before the House Judiciary Committee. Leading up to that, the memo that had been provided by ranking member Jim Jordan was leaked to the New York Times. And this was a memo about what? The House Republicans, their strategy for 
how they would ask Mayorkas questions, what they would focus on. It was a rather detailed memo. It was about 60 pages, according to the New York Times. And it was pretty remarkable for sort of the staffing memo ahead of a hearing to leak to the media. So there was already some anticipation as to, as to what would happen. And certainly it, it didn't disappoint. A number of Republicans on the committee highlighted the record high apprehensions, or should we say encounters, as the Biden administration chooses to, to rename the term, you know, month over month over month, to which point Secretary Mayorkas and the Democrats on the committee tried to claim that those numbers are inflated because there are people who are counted multiple times since the Title 42 Health Authority is turning people away more quickly. Right. So they just come right back. They come right back. Of course, that's been going on for as long as the Border Patrol has been around, right? Exactly right. That has always been an aspect of the monthly figures. And given the record high numbers that have been sustained throughout the Biden administration, there's no amount of double or triple counting of a single alien that gets you to the record level of apprehensions each month that, that we're seeing here. You also had a lot of dialogue about the refusal to enforce our immigration laws in the interior regarding 1.2 million aliens with final orders of removal. Secretary Mayorkas refused to say how many ICE agents would be necessary to remove all of them, and even went so far as to claim without any evidence that these aliens have not had proper due process, which of course is incredibly outlandish. And in order to get a final order of removal, you have gone before an immigration judge. You have had the opportunity to appeal numerous times that you have had literally all of the possible due process imaginable, which is very, very generous when it comes to an alien who has no right to be in this country. So it really is revealing in that the administration not only is unwilling to deport regular illegal immigrants who just are here unlawfully, but they're not even really willing to deport people who have had all their bites at the apple, gone through the whole thing, been ordered removed, and still refuse to leave. That's right. And when pressed for solutions, the secretary resorted to calling for, quote unquote, comprehensive immigration reform, which of course is amnesty. And on the issue of the border, claiming that we have a broken border and an outdated system. And again, when he told members of Congress, Congress has to change the laws, when asked to provide examples, again, it resorted to naming amnesty for various populations, nothing about how things are handled at the border, solidifying MPP in a legislative standpoint, nothing along those lines. It is very clear that any amount of immigration restriction or qualification that an alien doesn't qualify for is the obstacle that this administration objects to. Right. So, Art, what struck you about this? In other words, there was the fireworks, which if you want to talk about, I'd love to hear about that, but also were there policy sort of revealing policy statements, as Rob had referred to. What struck you? The tone of the hearing, both on the part of the members and on the part of Alejandra Mayorkas, in my mind, was probably the most significant takeaway. This is the first opportunity that the members of the House Judiciary Committee have had to question Alejandra Mayorkas, notwithstanding the fact that you know we're well into an unprecedented border crisis at the southwest border. More Illegal aliens were apprehended at the southwest border in FY 2021 than in any prior fiscal year in history. And already in 2022, FY 2022, more than a million illegal migrants have been apprehended by Border Patrol at the southwest border. So this is shaping up to be the worst year 
ever. But despite that fact, Chairman Jerry Nadler of the House Judiciary Committee has not seen fit to hold a pure border hearing or to call Secretary Mayorkas before he appeared before the House of Representatives. So why do you think, I mean, why did this hearing happen now then? Was it because of the Title 42 and Democrats themselves being worried about it? Yeah, no, I think that's exactly it. We have a midterm election coming up in November, and a lot of the Democratic members of the House of Representatives are in hotly contested seats. Immigration, we know, has pulled badly for the president and for his party almost from the beginning. And so this was probably more a attempt to show that they themselves were concerned about what's going on at the border than anything else. If Chairman Nadler, the majority Democrats, had not held this hearing, then a prime talking point against every Democratic member on the panel would have been they don't even care enough about the border to ask questions about it. So, yeah, I think that's a very apt observation on your part, Mark. I think that, you know, it really was something that they had to do, but they plainly didn't want to do. In fact, during their questioning, such as it was, they often attempted to bolster Secretary Mayorkas's position and, you know, talk about, you know, how limited the resources are. And again, Rob touched on an important issue, and that is recidivism. Recidivism is the rate at which any given alien who is removed from the United States re-enters within a 12-month period. The recidivism rate in FY2021 was about 27%. It had been, you know, below 10% for many years of the Trump administration. But it's important to note that between 2005 and 2009, the recidivism rate was actually up above 30%. So we've had situations before where there have been high rates of recidivism but not the kinds of apprehensions that we're seeing at the southwest border that we're seeing today. Another thing we're not taking into account, although the Republican members did allude to this, were the number of gotaways. And I think that there were some very important points that were made there. Those are illegal migrants who successfully evade Border Patrol and make it into the United States. Just to interject, the gotaways are people the Border Patrol has a pretty good idea did that. In other words, it's not a kind of seat-of-the-pants estimate of, well, we got one out of two. These are people that either they have photographic evidence of their coming across the border or somebody called in that there were footprints, but they never caught people. In other words, it's, it's, a, it's a number, this gotaways number is a number that's maybe not super solid, but it's based on some actual evidence rather than just speculation. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there are ground sensors, there are aerostats, tethered balloons that have pretty high-resolution cameras. And again, you know, public sources or private sources, if you would, who tell Border Patrol that they saw a large number of people come in. Border Patrol right now is so overwhelmed, you know, processing, transporting, and caring for migrants that in many Border Patrol sectors, fewer than half of the agents are actually on the line. They're not really on the border patrolling anything. Rather, they are doing paperwork and providing food to aliens who are in their custody before many are released to the United States and many are sent back to Mexico under Title 42. So, Rob, I want to come back to you to get to the fireworks part a little bit first. Were there a few exchanges with Republican members that were kind of notable? I mean, the Democratic members, I actually just looked through the list of Democratic members of the Judiciary Committee. None of them appear to be among the vulnerable 
people who were complaining about Title 42. So you would have thought if there were, some Democrats would be grilling Mayorkas just so that they could get some footage for, you know, ads or something like that to show that they're standing up. None of the people in judiciary seem to be the ones who are actually vulnerable. So were there some Republicans who had some notable video clips, that kind of thing? Yes, Mark. And if I could just touch real briefly on the gotaways, you know, in addition to the numbers, another alarming concern is who exactly are these people? Given how easy it is to be processed into the country with basically, you know, free train, plane, bus ticket, possibility to get a work permit or other benefits, the fact that a certain large number are not even doing the easy stuff of turning themselves in, there's a reasonable basis to believe that those might be some of the worst actors. And so whatever those numbers are, who they are and, the, and why it is they're evading the encounter is something that shouldn't go unnoticed. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I spoke last week with a Border Patrol agent down in South Texas, and I asked him, you know, what share, roughly speaking, of the people you, quote, encounter, unquote, are turning themselves in and what share did not want to be caught. And he said it's roughly half and half. And those other half are obviously people who, for whatever reason, have some kind of criminal issue to deal with. They may have been deported previously, which means they're a felon when they return, or they're just regular non-immigration criminals who want to get back into the United States. But to get back to my question, what were some of the notable fireworks? Oh, yeah. There was definitely your cable news sound bites or your, exactly. your, you know, your fire tweets. Obviously, ranking member Jordan, who I think everyone realizes is eyeing the chairman's gavel should Republicans take the House. He came out really swinging, uh, challenging the secretary with his own words from the past, claiming that the border is secure and pushing back on this claim that the Biden administration inherited a dismantled, broken immigration system and basically saying that it is, in fact, the Biden administration that has destroyed the system by their very permissive policies of, of coming and their animosity towards any amount of removals. Congressman Matt Gates, who's known to have a little bit of a fiery tongue, he had quite a few lines on the refusal to remove, in particular, the aliens with the final orders of removal, which that should really be the lowest of hanging fruit. Like these, right. as we've talked about, they had all of the avenues to find a, a way to stay here and have been told the line is up. That, that should be pretty easy. You know, so he had some lines about how they should all be rounded up, like the January 6th protesters. I mean, you even had some, and I think this goes to, to Art's point about the contentious nature of the hearing, both from Mayorkas's posture as well as the Republicans having this first opportunity 16 months into this administration to deal with, with Mayorkas in a hearing setting. Members who I'd say are usually not thought of as being real firebrands coming out pretty harsh. You had Congressman Daryl Issa saying, you know, you didn't inherit a bad system. You created the bad system. You had another member. This is one that has picked up a lot of attention in the news, basically saying that Secretary Mayorkas's behavior has become a shame to the Mayorkas name and that no one should ever be named Alejandro again, <laughs> akin to a, an Arnold family no longer considering Benedict as, right. as a name. I mean, that's, that's the one that really, I think, uh, that was from Ken Buck. Again, uh -huh. not someone who's thought of as being a real hardliner on immigration, but... Interesting. Yeah, I, know, didn't, just, I didn't see that. That, that one there. really kind of took a lot of the oxygen out of the room, which is, I think that's when the, the Democrats on the committee started just, they stopped asking questions and basically just said, Secretary Mayorkas, the floor is yours right. to filibuster however 
you'd like. Interesting. So, Art, the cable news soundbite part is, you know, interesting. And frankly, politics is partly theater, so there's there's nothing wrong with that. But I was wondering what your thoughts were about the secretary being asked, so, Mr. Secretary, is the border secure? And he said, yes, the border is secure. What do you think he meant by that? In other words, I don't think he was just sort of brazenly lying, at least in his own mind. I think he has a different conception of what the border being secure means. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, and this is a point that both you and I have touched on a number of times in the recent past. The Biden administration has shifted away from a concept of border security in which we discourage migrants from entering the United States illegally, and we attempt to catch as many as we can and remove them to a posture in which they are attempting to process as many illegal migrants who care to turn themselves in at the southwest border and then releasing them into the United States so that they can pursue whatever claims they might have, asylum or otherwise. And this is a significant shift. There's a reason why you know we've hit new numbers at the southwest border in FY2021 and FY2022. And that is because people know that if they enter the United States illegally, they have a very good chance of being released. The Biden administration is apparently not doing any vetting with respect to the asylum claims of individuals at the southwest border before they release them. They're simply releasing them into the United States so that they can pursue asylum at their leisure, if you would, while they live and work in this country. And if you want to know why there's so many illegal migrants, it's because so many are being let go. People enter the United States illegally so that they can live and work in the United States. A good asylum claim, a bad asylum claim, or no asylum claim at all whatsoever at this point in history is sufficient to gain release from immigration custody and to be released in the United States. But it's absolutely crucial. And I agree with you about Mayorkas' contention. It reminds me of Humpty Dumpty in Alice in Wonderland. Where <laughs> words only mean what I want them to mean. You know, he says, yeah, we have operational control because, you know, we're controlling everybody that enters the United States illegally. Would have been the way that I probably would have finished that sentence for him. But operational control has a specific meaning in statute, doesn't it? Yeah, it's the prevention of any unlawful alien from entering the United States. And the words are pretty exact, but I believe that from Mayorkas' perspective, they're no longer unlawful migrants at the time that, you know, they're caught, processed, and released by DHS. Now, whether that is a interpretation of the rule that's going to carry the day is questionable. I, the states are going to challenge that because Congress was extremely clear. In fact, that language comes from the Secure Fence Act of 2006. I played a small role in the drafting of that act and the drafting of the language. Which, by the way, President Biden voted for, right? President Biden voted for it, President Obama voted for it, and would-be President Hillary Clinton voted for it, all while they were senators. And the people think of the Secure Fence Act in terms of the fence, but in reality, the fence was just a means to an end and not an end itself. The fence was intended to be erected so that we could stop those people from simply entering the United States illegally. Mayorkas, both through his catch-and-release policies and through the fact that those catch-and-release policies have led to so many gotaways has effectively eviscerated that standard. And so, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how reviewing courts take a look at that. But, you know, you can understand when you get answers like that from Mayorkas why the Republican members, including 
Ken Buck of Colorado and Daryl Issa of California, you know, two sublime gentlemen, we veered into some peppery attacks on Secretary Mayorkas. Mayorkas knew that he was just checking a box being there and felt like he had carte blanche to say whatever he wanted. But yeah, that is a significant issue. But it's absolutely crucial. You've made this point. I've made this point. We need to keep making this point that the policy of the Biden administration is no longer deterrent. The policy of the Biden administration is processing of aliens into the United States as quickly as possible. And that is its goal. And Rob, to go off of what Art said, they did issue a supposed plan for what DHS wants to do when Title 42 is lifted. And I think the Republicans kind of set themselves up because they said, you know, there's no plan, there's no plan for the end of Title 42. And so the DHS kind of called their bluff and said, yeah, here we have a plan, 19-page plan or whatever it was. But what does the plan tell us? Having looked at it, it seems to me it underlines what Art just said, is that their goal is not stopping illegal entries. Their goal is more efficiently and expeditiously processing illegal immigrants into the United States. That's right. The 20-page plan that came out just days before the hearing is all about processing. Processing, 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 which means that you know, really this administration's immigration policy is controlled by optics. So when you had the Haitians congregating under the bridge, that was bad optics. So that was a problem. And so some of them were removed by plane. But if they can process more quickly into the interior of the country, the American people don't really get to see and understand the full impact of what these policies are doing. And so this entire plan called the DHS Plan for Southwest Border Security and Preparedness. It is about more resources to processing through CBP, transporting more quickly. There's nothing about deterrence. There's nothing about impact on Americans, American workers. It is basically just how quickly can we funnel people into the interior of the country. And then when you combine that with their reducing the application of expedited removal, and the immigration enforcement priorities, which essentially make almost every illegal alien off limits to removal, indicates that there's a very, very small likelihood that these people are ever going to be removed from the country, despite the fact that they are not going to qualify for asylum on an overwhelming majority of the cases. Right, right. So, Art, the Judiciary Committee is also the one that initiates or first deals with impeachment proceedings, if I'm not mistaken, and correct me if I'm wrong. And there was at least one member from Louisiana who specifically referred to that. And so what do you expect in January when Jim Jordan is almost certainly going to be chairman of the Judiciary Committee that do you foresee articles of impeachment against Mayorkas? And, you know, is it more likely even because of his performance last week? Yeah, and that raises a very important point. Articles of impeachment and impeachment hearings actually occur within the House Judiciary Committee. And then those articles go to the floor of the House and the Senate acts as the judge and jury for impeachment itself. But you're actually impeached once those articles go out of the Judiciary Committee and they're voted up or down on the floor. Again, the standards for impeachment are high. You know, high crimes and misdemeanors, things like treason are bases for impeachment. And there have been very few successful impeachments in American history, primarily judges. But there will be 
impetus within the Republican conference in the House, in the 118th Congress, to seek the impeachment of Alejandro Mayorkas. Whether leadership allows that to go forward, they probably, you know, they may want to turn the temperature down and pull the order of those who seek impeachment. You know, whether that goes forward, I can't really tell you, but I can tell you right now that if the Republicans actually gain the majority in the 118th Congress, the polling would indicate at this point that that's likely to occur. There will be a lot of impetus, a lot of pressure put on the speaker, put on the majority leader to at least have hearings on impeachment, if not actually bring an impeachment uh, vote to the floor of the House and send it over to the Senate. So, Rob, there have been members talking about this, but what is your sense about whether policy would be any different, whether Mayorkas were there or not? I mean, let's just speculate that the House does vote to impeach him. And the unlikely event then that the Senate would vote to remove because you need a two-thirds vote there. And Republicans aren't going to get probably, even if they take the Senate, not going to get 67 votes. And even if they did, several of them are, you know, squishes. But let's say Secretary Mayorkas either is removed or just resigns to spend more time with his family because of the poison relationships he has with Congress. Would it really be any different, whoever were to replace him? You know, it certainly doesn't seem like it would be. Maybe the pace of these policies effectively dismantling immigration enforcement might slow down. A key question will be, what does the U.S. Senate look like as far as needing to confirm a new secretary in the absence of the split 50-50 or or some level of of a Democrat majority? Perhaps the Biden administration foregoes the confirmation process, much like to my dismay, the, the Trump administration failed to do so at DHS, relying, just have acting people. Just re- relying on acting people, which then could possibly make their policies vulnerable to being struck down on sort of appointment issues, as a lot of Trump administration uh, policies have been struck down, not on the merits, but on whether or not the various acting DHS secretaries had the authority to do so. But in the interim, for the remainder of the Biden administration, I think you're going to continue to see more of the same. They clearly have been told from the get-go that these immigration policies are unpopular. There have been numerous tales of a divide within the actual White House, two different camps. And it's not that there are immigration hawks in the White House, but there are at least people who are of the political mind that understand that it's- Are more cautious. That they're cautious. It's damaging to the brand of Democrats to go ahead with this. But if you look at the makeup of the political appointees that remain at DHS- They seem to all come from the ilk that there is not an alien that should ever be denied a benefit, regardless of what the INA, our immigration laws, actually do say. So, Art, to get back to the hearing specifically, you've served in uh, different administrations, Republican and Democrat, and also a couple of times on Capitol Hill. Was this hearing last week, was it unprecedented? Was it unusual? I mean, was the, the tone and the interaction and what have you something that you've seen before, or was this something that's kind of rare on Capitol Hill? Hearings often get heated. You often get chippiness from members of the executive branch when they come up. But honestly, I've never seen the sort of chippiness that we saw out of Alejandro Mayorkas last week. It was really something exceptional. And I think that that itself turned up the temperature on the part of the Republican members. Congress passes the laws. And the Secretary of Homeland Security is supposed to enforce the immigration laws. 
And there was plainly frustration at the fact that those laws are not being carried out. Now, we had talked about impeachment before, but, you know, it's important in this context to focus on another important power of the House of Representatives. Under the Constitution, all bills raising revenue have to come out of the House. And as a consequence, the appropriations start in the House. And if you looked at those members and you understand the fact that they reflect the concerns of many members of the Republican conference, the Republicans in the 118th Congress could, if they gain the majority, actually cut funding for some key aspects of immigration and other things. Certainly at the secretary's office, they could take away everybody's parking spots if they wanted to. But I anticipate that even more likely than, you know, articles of impeachment or impeachment itself, you're going to see those Republicans use that power of the purse, as we call it, as James Madison called it, to work their will on what DHS is doing, especially at the border. There's a certain tension there, though, because if there were a Republican Congress, they would want to restrict funding, but they actually want more activity out of DHS. In other words, can Congress actually make an executive department do proactively things that it doesn't want to do. You can stop them from doing things they do want to do by saying no money may be spent on X, Y, and Z. But isn't it harder to say this money must be spent and it must be spent on X, Y, and Z, and this is the way you have to do it? Yeah, and that goes to what's called the Anti-Deficiency Act. So, you know, we think that Congress just gives a big bag of money to the executive branch and the executive branch spends it as it wants. But Congress can put restrictions, riders on to funding bills that say money must be spent for things like detention. Money cannot be spent for things like allowing asylum officers to adjudicate expedited removal I see. at the southwest border. And another example is Secretary Mayorkas's priorities memo. I think that dates back to March 2021, in which you know he restricted certain DHS activities. Now, Congress really doesn't have the ability to say you must arrest X number of aliens, but they do have the ability to prevent DHS from expending any funds on the implementation of that policy memo, which would basically get to the same point. So you'd be taking the power to make those decisions out of the hands of the immigrant advocates in the White House, and you'd be putting it in the hands of line agents who are actually on the street trying to arrest bad people. So, yeah, I mean, that would be something that they could do. And if the administration decides to go ahead and do what it wants, notwithstanding those restrictions, that really does set up a constitutional issue under the Take Care Clause. But more importantly, it sets up a statutory issue under the Anti-Deficiency Act. So if it is Speaker McCarthy come January, one of the first things that you can bet that he's going to do is get his budget people together. They will craft a budget, which of course will go to the Judiciary Committee for you know that immigration function. They can ask for more money or say it needs to be spent here. And then all of that will go over to the appropriators. And those appropriators are pretty likely to put some rather significant restrictions on what the Biden administration is trying to do. So the other thing Congress can do is oversight hearings. Is that correct? Because you, you were involved in oversight issues on other matters. What is the power and what can Congress effect if they were to have more oversight hearings? Well, there's been a marked lack of transparency from the Biden administration with respect to many of the things that it actually is doing. 
Our colleague John Fury has noted the fact that the ICRO report is over five months overdue at this point. That's really what tells us how many aliens are being arrested and how many aliens are being removed from the interior of the United States. With that oversight authority, they can demand that information, but more saliently for purposes of this conversation, they can call Alejandro Mayorkas up to testify as often as they want. They can have him testify before Energy and Commerce. They can have him testify before the Foreign Affairs Committee, Armed Services, if they want. Everybody in Congress will get the chance to have their swing at Alejandro Mayorkas. So, and that really is very effective because eventually, Mayorkas will just get so ground down, possibly, that he would actually start enforcing the law and actually deter people. But that oversight authority is absolutely crucial. People think of Congress as being a lawmaking body, which it is, but oversight is all the more important. So when we talk about things like operational control, yeah, he's not going to get one question or two questions or five questions. He's going to get asked about that every day of the week because that touches on every aspect of American life. Right, right. We'll wrap it up here. Any last thoughts, Rob? A final observation from the hearings, as well as the, the DHS plan, is that there is a continued putting the blame on the Trump administration for all of the woes of the border on the legal immigration side of things at USCIS, on backlog processing of work permits and all of those things. The Biden administration takes no responsibility, looks internal to their policies driving the border surge. And when it comes to some of the work permit processing, they fail to neglect the fact that they've approved new work permits to going on probably close to about a million new illegal aliens. So their inability to keep up with that workflow plus renewals of the existing work permit population These are Biden administration policies. This is not continuing to blame the predecessor. It's just the further and further we go into the Biden administration, it it becomes less and less persuasive. Wasn't there just a report this week that they're just automatically renewing everybody's work permits? Yes. So uh, that can be a subject for another day. But yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. they're, they're cutting out the APA notice and comment requirements again, unilaterally acting to expand work permits for 540 days beyond their facial expiration date. Interesting. Okay. So another grounds for somebody to sue the administration probably on APA. Any last thoughts, Art, on this hearing this last week with Mayorkas or Mayorkas in general? Yeah, I think that the hearing last week is a preview of what Secretary Mayorkas can you know, expect and <laughs> live with. If the Republicans were to take a majority in either or both houses, one important thing to note is, again, you know, this hearing was held for a reason, and that reason was probably political cover on the part of the Democrats. We saw a shift under the Clinton administration when, you know, they had to contend with a Republican Congress in 1994, two years into Bill Clinton's term. They actually shifted on many of their policies, including their immigration policies. And, you know, I don't necessarily think that we're going to see a similar shift. But depending on how many seats the Democrats lose, if they lose any, again, the election's a long way off, but a Democratic Party that is interested in holding on to the White House after the 2024 election is probably going to force, you know, some sort of change on the Biden administration. And again, you know, Chris Eliza at CNN, no uh, right winger, described immigration as the sleeper issue of the upcoming midterm election. So I think that we probably will see some changes in the makeup of Congress, and I think that's going to lead to possibly some shifts in the White House. But nothing thus far from the White House would indicate that's going to happen. 
but it is possible. It could be. I'll believe it when I see it because President Biden is not really in charge of his administration in the same way that President Clinton was and also is in a lot of ways a different politician. So could happen from your lips to God's ears, but we'll see what happens. Thank you, Art Arthur and Rob Law. Each of them have a post on our blog on the hearings last week on Secretary Mayorkas' appearances before the House committees. You can take a look at those at our website, cis.org, and we will have one or both of you on in the future when more happens on this. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Mark. Thank you, Mark. And finally, last week I was on a border tour, helping lead a border tour of about a dozen people down in South Texas, all the way down almost at the Gulf of Mexico in the area around McAllen and Brownsville. The Border Patrol sector there is called the Rio Grande Valley sector. And I've been there before, but it really was a lot of illuminating stuff. One of the things that really struck me, which I knew, obviously, but it was maybe brought home more directly, was how meandering the border is down there and how that changes the way you need to do border enforcement. Because the land portion of the border, starting just west of El Paso and continuing to the Pacific Ocean, is all on land. And it's all basically straight lines. And so border fencing is easier to do there. And it's also, in most places, much more open because it's desert. And uh, this doesn't mean it's easy to patrol, but it's easier. The Rio Grande, especially when you get down toward the end of it, is a very old river. And so like the Mississippi, which is another old river, it meanders back and forth, back and forth. And so you have all kinds of areas where you have these, what amounts to part of Mexico sticking up into the United States or in part of the United States sticking down into Mexico as the river goes up and down, back and forth. And you really can't build border fence that tracks the border. It's got to be back from the border, and that creates all kinds of complications. We met with uh, landowners whose land is split one part on one side of the border, the other part on the other side, on the Mexican side, if you will, and makes it, frankly, hard for them to use their land. It becomes kind of a no man's land if it's on the other side of the border. This doesn't mean it's not possible to control or patrol the border. It's just a very different challenge the Border Patrol faces than on the non-river parts of the border. Basically, the 800 miles, 700-something miles from El Paso west to the ocean, whereas the something like 1,200 miles of border from El Paso downriver to the Gulf of Mexico are a very different kind of challenge. And we also met with a number of Border Patrol agents, retired or currently serving, and it was real, real I don't know if terror is the right word, but boy, were they worried about what they're going to face when the Title 42 order is lifted, the one that the public health order that allows the Border Patrol to just turn people around without hearings or anything, and has served to a degree to dampen the crossings. I mean, it's a disaster down there, but it's when Title 42 ends, it's going to be a mega disaster. In fact, down in the McAllen station of the Rio Grande Valley sector. So the way the 
the border is divided up by the Border Patrol is there's nine sectors on the Mexican border. Each of those larger sectors is then broken up into smaller units called stations. Well, the McAllen Station, which is the busiest on the Mexican border now, is seeing something like a thousand illegal alien apprehensions a day. They call them encounters. An agent I talked to, he said uh, one of the days last week was a slow day and they only had 700 arrests that day, but it's about a thousand a day, again, in this one section of one section of the border. And the reason that number is striking, I mean, it seems like a lot of people, but it's actually, when you put it in context, it's even more alarming because President Obama's Secretary of Homeland Security, Jay Johnson, whom I disagreed with on a lot of things, but he's a serious man. I mean, he took his job seriously, I think, in a way that maybe Secretary Mayorkas does not, or maybe seriously isn't the right word, but he saw his job in the way the law intends and the way people understand it to limit illegal crossings, as opposed to Secretary Mayorkas, as we just talked about, really doesn't see his job that way, sees his job as facilitating illegal immigration. But Secretary Johnson had said, this was like a year or two ago, I think, it wasn't that long ago, he had said publicly that when he was secretary, if there were a thousand arrests in a day on the whole border, he knew that was a pretty bad day. That was starting to be a problem and beginning to overwhelm the system. What we're seeing now during the border tour, we went down there last week, is a thousand arrests a day just in one section of one sector of the border. It's that bad. And when Title 42 ends, as it will have to end at some point, it's probably not going to end this month as scheduled because it's been held up by judicial ruling, but it will have to end at some point. I mean, COVID is over as a pandemic. The DHS, Homeland Security, is actually preparing for a doubling or more of the number of arrests at the border. There was a piece in one of the border publications that said the shelters on the Mexican side of the border, I think this was from Juarez, which is opposite El Paso, were totally filled up with people anticipating the end of Title 42. In other words, when it ended, they were going to rush across the border, all say the magic words about fearing persecution or what have you. And according to this administration's policies, they'll be processed and released into the United States. And this is, this is the nightmare scenario for a lot of the agents and a lot of the residents down there. We met with a number of people who have land right on the river, and they're terrified of what the consequences are going to be. And, you know, we'll see. We don't know yet. It could be. It won't be that bad. We can't know, but I think it's going to be pretty bad. And it was, in a sense, kind of a, if you will, a sort of before and after tour. In other words, we got to see what it's like now when there's a crisis and it's when Title 42 ends, that crisis, which is today, is going to turn into a catastrophe. And it will be, I guess, interesting is maybe not the right word for it, but at least those of us who went on the tour will have something concrete to compare the post-Title 42 catastrophe to the pre-Title 42 crisis, which already exists. That's it for this week's episode of parsing immigration policy. If you get this on a podcasting platform that allows you to do rating or reviewing, please do so. If you have any comments or complaints, anything at all, feel free to just email me directly, 
at msk at cis.org. And I hope you'll tune in next week. Thank you.